subduction needs. So what role will remain for molecules like CO2, H2, and O2? There are many applications being explored. In the transport sector, hydrogen could be a solution to fuel heavy-duty vehicles, and e-fuels and methanol are being explored for maritime shipping. Sustainable aviation fuels are being looked at for air transport. New industrial processes could also be developed in the cement, steel, and chemical industries. All of these new energy pathways are based on combinations of hydrogen, oxygen, and carbon of biogenic and atmospheric origin. So today we'll be talking about whether these alternative energy sources using molecules are realistic and what kind of time frame we could be looking at for their development. We'll also be exploring the energy security implications of all of this, since that is one of the main preoccupations of Europe at the moment, given the conflict with Russia. Could these new energy sources lead to new dependencies, either on hydrogen providers or on critical raw materials? In terms of the timeline, switching directly to renewable hydrogen, direct air capture, and biogenic carbon may prove difficult considering the current maturity level of these technologies. Another strategy could be to adopt a phased approach prioritizing the reduction of CO2 emissions through existing technologies such as capture and storage of CO2 coming from hydrogen production or hard-to-abate industries. Also, at the same time, we could be steadily building additional production capacities of renewable and low-carbon hydrogen to match the growing energy demand. So, can we find a consensus on the best strategy for utilizing these molecules? Let's turn to our panel of experts to discuss this today. So we have here with us live in the studio Brice Lalonde, uh, who is the president of Equilibre des Energies, Eden, a uh, platform of stakeholders in the energy, construction, and mobility sectors. Brice is also, of course, a former French minister and executive coordinator of the UN Conference on Sustainable Development. Uh, then next to him, we have Gabriel Gauthier, who is senior vice president for European affairs at Total Energies. We have uh, next to her Jonas Helseth, director of the environmental NGO Bellona Europa. And joining us remotely, we have Chris Bolesta from the European Commission. He is team leader for decarbonization and sustainability of energy sources at CCUS at the European Commission's Energy Department. Now, Portuguese MEP Lydia Pereira was unfortunately not able to join us today. She was called away on urgent business, but she will have a video that she's prepared for our introductory round of questions. Now, you guys at home are going to be able to ask your questions to the panelists using Slido. You can scan the QR code that's on your screen right now if you're watching remotely, or if you're sitting in the audience, you can use your smartphone to scan the QR code that's on the monitor right there, or you can also find the QR code at a couple of spots on the walls around you in case that uh, QR code on the screen isn't working. You can pose your questions by typing them into Slido, whether you're here in the room or watching online, and I'll be posing those questions to the panelists later on. Okay, let's get started. Chris, I'd like to go to you first for a question on the, the policy framework of all of this. Um, when we're looking particularly at CO2 and H2, how is the Commission incorporating the use of carbon and hydrogen in policymaking, given all of the context that I just lined out? Thank you, Dave, and, and hello. Good morning, everyone. I was 
almost the second person who who didn't make it, but at least via video I can I can speak to you. So that's that's great. Um, yeah, what what we are doing on on hydrogen and, and CO two, there's actually quite a lot of stuff going on at the moment, and I think this conference is really timely in this respect. Um, well, let me start with the the, the first piece of uh, of strategy that we developed. It's uh, the uh, system integration strategy. This really laid um, the the foundation for developing sector strategies like hydrogen and and now CECS. So uh, sector in energy sector integration strategy. Then we looked to to hydrogen, and so. Um, First, we had the hydrogen strategy aiming to, to have uh, the, the hydrogen playing a, uh, a role in the decarbonized economy uh, with three stages from 2025 to 2050, with obviously uh, a significant target of 40 gigawatts of installed electrolyzers in 2030. That's basically in a couple of years. And this is the major pool for us to actually provide certainty to the market to develop these capacities, production capacities, to pull the demand from the sector. Uh, and we see that hard to bait sectors, as you, as you, as you said in your introductory remarks, that this is this is for, for hard to bait sectors. Some of the some of the hydrogen we'll see uh, could be used in uh, uh, in in some transport sectors, uh, long haul, maybe shipping. Um, and uh, on top of the strategy we have now uh, uh, with co-legislators, uh, the regulatory package that will provide uh, regulation, regulatory framework for, for hydrogen networks and some uh, infrastructure planning. And recently we have published a communication on hydrogen bank and uh, the famous net zero emission, net zero industry act. So the hydrogen bank is its aim is to close the investment gap uh, that we have by 2030, and we are aiming with this communication to facilitate development of the of the hydrogen value chain. Uh, with NCR, there's uh, well NCR Net Zero Industry Act. Uh, we are trying to uh, to provide some uh, to facilitate deployment of uh, manufacturing of of electrolyzers. Uh, so this is also. So a, a market push, and uh, we, we're trying to make sure that we have these electrolyzers targets and enough hydrogen, uh, as promised in the in the strategy. Um, a second leg of the of 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 the molecules, it's the CO two, and uh, this is uh, following on the hydrogen uh, in the hydrogen um, tracks. So we don't have the CCS, CCUS strategy yet, but we are working on it. So it will be published later this year, um, uh, but but we we decided to add CO two to the Net Zero uh, Industry Act. So the, the CO two has a very prominent role there. Uh, how we provide the market pool? We actually want to impose an obligation to, on some marketplace to provide CO two storage capacity. So the market has certainty to develop a uh, certainty that there'll be storage so they could invest in in capture and uh, and transport. Um, so I think uh, a lot of things and uh, enough for my 
uh, introductory remarks. Thanks. Thanks, Chris. Let's turn to Mr. Lalonde next. Um, when we, we just heard the policy framework outlined there, when you guys are looking at pathways for the use of CO2, H2, and O2, which pathways will that uh, be, be, be most urgent in at the start? Where will those pathways develop? And in which sectors do you think the use of CO2, H2, and O2 should be prioritized? Well, uh, thank you. Um, I think we've all been introductory remarks now. We have a, a, a sort of a framework. We know where we are going. Of course, um, electricity is going to be the main uh, decarbonizing tool, but uh, we have to produce hydrogen. And we, have, we had the uh, proposal from the, from, the, from the commission, how many, how much, electrolysis, etc. But we, there's been a lot of fashion. You know, hydrogen was very fashionable, and uh, you must be careful. You can't use it for everything. It has to be only used for probably as a fuel for transportation, for perhaps aviation later on, either alone, either mixed with ammonia to, to make it easier to transport. But the main, the main, prop, the main uh, um, interest of hydrogen is going to be as a component to mix uh, with uh, carbon. And so the question is, OK, now where are we going to take the hydrogen from, where you have to produce it, and where are we going to take the carbon from? So there's steps. So it's, we start by uh, oil or you know, waste oil, things like that. We, we, we go to biomass. But people must understand that biomass is not unlimited. So the real aim is to use carbon from CO2. That's the aim. And that means what? That means that CO2 as a waste must become a resource. So the first step is to ask for these companies, which are hard to abate for the CO2, which are still emitting CO2, which you cannot electrify. They have to capture CO2. That's the first step. They have to capture CO2, and they have to put it somewhere. So we'll discuss after how you put it. But of course, it's much better to use it, of course. So that's, that's the second thing. At the same time that you capture CO2, you must develop solutions, decarbonized solutions for these companies which can be used. That is e-fuels. So, well, you start by SAF, but e-fuel is the best. I mean, the aim is e-fuels, produce e-fuels. Because if you have a lot of electricity, and that means a lot of electricity, well, uh, you can do that. So that's, people must understand that if you want to decarbonize, it cannot be less, 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 less. You have to produce a lot. It's a lot of industry. A lot of industry because you have to produce the electrolyzers, you have to produce the batteries, you have to produce, I mean, a lot, it's a lot. And you have to produce so, many, so much energy if you want to, to break the CO2 molecule and mix it with carbon. And, and carbon, in the end, must come from not only from uh, the companies where you're going to take the CO2 from industrial CO2, but it's going to come from the air at one point. Because our problem is there's too much carbon in the air. You have to take it. If you have to find a way to take it. Or from the sea. The sea takes more carbon than the air. So it's recycling, the whole thing. And that's the aim. It's not ready right now, but we have to go to that aim. And we have to use all, all our tools, all our incentives to get to that tool. How do you recycle carbon? And how do you produce from, from, from a waste, a resource, CO2, to mix with hydrogen? Well, let's focus in on 
capturing that carbon. Gabrielle, let's turn to you next. How can carbon capture and storage help to decarbonize our energy system without relying entirely on electrification? How does it provide an alternative? Well, as was very well said before, electrification is not going to be the only <clears throat> source and there are many sectors that are, as we say, hard to abate. And the urgency before we use and develop this carbon change that we can talk about in a second step, the first step, but at the same time is, um, is to reduce, urgently reduce, the masses of CO2 that are still being emitted by uh, the chemical industry, the steel, the cement, our refineries, uh, or even the masses of hydrogen that we use, grey hydrogen, 300 kiloton per year for, for, our, for our company, for instance. So uh, today, um, the other, the second step is not mature enough to be able to use. So first thing, and uh, of course, hydrogen, as Brice very well said, was a hype and was very fashionable. So I'm going to talk about something that was not fashionable, that is a must-have, which is called CCS. That people were pinching their nose in many countries uh, until very recently when one talking about this topic. Um, I had the honor of uh, uh, taking FID for, one, for the first European merchant project, uh, Northern Lights, um, together with Equinor and, and Shell uh, in the North Sea, with, together with the Norwegian government. Um, that's um, when, on the other side of the Atlantic, the US is just incentivizing it with, uh, not since IRA, but long ago with 45Q. Now, I think it's recognized also by the International Energy Agency that all net zero pathways need CCS. You will not do without it. So, um, it's, um, uh, and uh, the, I'm very glad to see that uh, the, the European Commission has recognized this in the, in, in, in the um, NZIA and in the NACT, Net Zero Industrial Act, uh, as something that should be incentivized. You don't only need storage capacity approximately for Europe between 500, 500 million ton per year and one gigaton. Uh, for the whole world, uh, by 2050, it would be good to have seven gigatons per year, which is huge. Um, as a company, we have, um, um, we have the target uh, by 2030 of having 10 million ton and probably by 2050, almost 100 million ton per year of storage capacity. The bottleneck is going to be, if we decide we go this way, is going to be the storage capacity, so we need to look to be looking and qualifying for this. Then, of course, as soon as we can, and and it's not. I'm not saying this uh, because um, to 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 continue the oil and gas age uh, as it was too often presented. You know, being a horrible oil and gas company, usually we were accused of having pushing this to continue. No. Um, we are also at the same time thinking about how to use and how to store this CO2 uh, in new change, new value change. First thing is, of course, the food and beverage, but it's very little today compared to the masses that are still being emitted and that urgently needs to be removed from, the, from these emissions. Uh, but also store in, in construction, um, uh, in cement. We're having some research with Alsim how to store the, or, in, or in wood constructions or things like that. Um, and then, of course, you can imagine much more uh, intelligent and, and, and um, uh, sophisticated uh, chains because the CO2 is the building block of potential uh, decarbonized synthetic molecules that really can help decarbonize sectors like what was said, the aviation sector. The methanol route is one of them. Um, combined, I saw in the GIEC report that 
There were 160 startups uh, trying to work on examining uh, new um, new products through various um, various technologies, either hydrogen, well, um, hydrogenation, like combination of CO2 and hydrogen. Uh, this is the methanol rule that we're following. I can, for instance, quote um, a pilot uh, project that we have with Siemens, Mazdar, and uh, Marubeni, a promising thing to with um, partners like Etihad and Lufthansa uh, to to go this methanol route to and to head towards the SAF production uh, in Abu Dhabi, uh, for instance. But also what we are uh, doing in Loina, in our refinery. Um, First step is, of course, to go um, with biomass uh, and feedstock, which is biomass. And the second one is, but perhaps we'll talk about that later, where the CO2 and the H2 um, come from, not necessarily biomass, but when we can go and remove and go through the Becks and Dax route, which are not ready today, but which we are working on as well, then you can combine and make synthetic molecules that are not issued from biogenic um, uh, sources. But these are, this, these are, this is the future, we're working on it. Um, uh, it's an exciting future, but the first urgent thing we must not forget is store. Store and at the same time work on R&D to use. Indeed, it's a work in progress. Um, Jonas, Gabrielle alluded there, I think, to some of the criticism that these technologies uh, involving molecules have endured. Some people say, oh, it's just an excuse to continue fossil fuels, or for hydrogen, oh, it's just an excuse to build more infrastructure. From your vantage point, how reliable do you think these technologies are, and do you think there's a danger of becoming distracted on technologies that could be unproven, that are still being worked on, um, that you know, in the end might not pan out? <clears throat> so yeah, that's a, that's a, it's a wide question. Uh, but um, so let's, since we're talking about two different things here, so hydrogen on the one side and CO2 on the other side, we're talking also about combining the two. I'll get back to that. But maybe start with what Chris was referring to on hydrogen. Um, because Hydrogen is not something that is new. And when we say it was a hype, I would say it is a hype. Uh, hydrogen is often presented as something new, but it's something that we have been working with for more than 100 years. Now, um, the target that uh, Chris was referring to, the target for electrolyzers, the target for producing uh, renewable hydrogen um, in Europe, is often understood to be a renewable target. But the way it was initially framed, it was not. The building of electrolyzers is using renewable electricity, not producing it. And it is a quite an energy intensive process, which means we need to think about how to use that efficiently. Where do we need the hydrogen and where do we not need it? And um, when we set targets for green hydrogen, renewable hydrogen, if that doesn't come along with an increased target for producing renewable electricity, it's not a renewable target. It's just a target to direct the use of the renewable electricity in the grid. So that's why we also think it's really important that the European Parliament and the Council will approve the Delegated Act, which sets that requirement for electrolyzers to come along with additional renewable electricity, uh, the additionality requirement. Now, um, to the CO2 and um, either using it or, or, um, or um, storing it, I think, first of all, we need to recognize that CO2 is a massive liability that we're currently putting on future gener generations. So every year, Europe is dumping more than a billion tons of CO2 
in the atmosphere, dumping. And when we talk about DACs removing CO2 from the atmosphere and storing it, we need to be also clear that every ton of CO2 that we currently dump in the atmosphere is CO2 that future generation will have to take out of there and permanently stop from getting back in there. So this is what we are currently facing. We need, to, we need to be clear that the first priority has to be stopping emissions from being dumped in the atmosphere. And the scale is massive. So CO2 storage clearly is something that we need for that. And to the extent we don't manage to cut all the CO2 we're dumping now, we're going to need it for that CO2 that's being removed in the future. And um, finally, on the point about e-fuels. I think we can have a long conversation about e-fuels, which also links to the hydrogen. E-fuels depend on the availability of enormous amounts of hydrogen, which in turn depend on the availability of enormous amounts of renewable electricity. And first of all, we don't have any of that. So we have to build it. Secondly, when we have that in the next decades, we're going to have a limited amount of that. It's going to be a scarce resource. We need to think about how do we use that electricity and if we produce hydrogen, that hydrogen in the most efficient way where we get the biggest bang for bucks in terms of climate impact. And I would say producing fuels and burning them in a car, which is currently the German trauma, uh, which the German government is using to block the 2035 um, um, end of combustion engine targets. Um, this is not a way to use the renewable electricity that we're currently not even producing enough of to decarbonize the grids. Who remembers about the Energiewende? Well, I mean, I think what we've heard so far is very much that getting the regulatory balance is really essential here. Um, let's go now to the pre-recorded video we have from Portuguese MEP Lydia Pereira. I had asked Lydia uh, yesterday, what is the right way to get this regulatory balance correct on these types of molecule technologies? So let's check out that video now. Dear friends, first of all, let me thank you for your kind invitation to participate in this thrilling event on CO2, H2 and O2 as cornerstones for the energy transition. With more than 400 participants, it is already a huge success. And I'm really sorry I cannot be there with you in Brussels to exchange ideas and debate how can Europe go further on energy transition. As some of you know, I am the Parliament Rapporteur for the Carbon Removal Certification Framework, a new piece of legislation much needed to improve our transition, to fight greenwashing and to draw private financial resources to help on the energy and climate transition. However, this is a permanent challenge. How do we get the regulatory balance right to encourage the use of alternative energy sources? How do we take the important steps we need regarding the energy union? How can we foster clean tech scale up in the European Union? The transition to a new energy system must bring investments and I would dare to say to bring a shock to our aging grid infrastructure. We know that production is becoming increasingly decentralized. New demands such like electrical vehicles and heat pumps are increasing and consumers are becoming producers as well. To add to this, today, wind and solar are the cheapest forms of new electricity generation that is added to the European electrical grid. I underline, solar and wind are the cheapest for electricity generation. So one must ask, why is France blocking the much needed electric interconnection 
with Spain and thus hampering the use of renewables. Why should a country be able to stop such fundamental infrastructures for the entire Union? We should be answering these important related questions, but let's also mention the role of the reg regulatory balance. When a new idea comes up in the USA, they ask, how are we going to make money out of this? In Europe, we say, how are we going to regulate this? And that is a crucial different way of looking at things, a cultural difference that we must prevent to limit our development. I am not a fan of excessive regulation, for instance, on CO2 removals. I am looking forward to have an act as clean and straightforward as I can. That is something that regulators should always have in mind. We don't regulate for ourselves. We regulate for the people and for the companies who are not, neither should have to be experts in EU law. So to get the regulatory balance, we need to encourage the use of alternative energy sources. And I would say, keep it simple and keep the EU interest above countries' interests. It seems simple because it is. It's us in Brussels who like to complicate things for the entrepreneurs and the industry. So we, ch we should choose to be sustainable in our different economic choices for two reasons, for being cheaper and for being simpler. Our job as legislators should be to create the ecosystem where there is a simple rule applies. Thank you very much. Thanks to Lydia there. So Lydia mentioned CCUS. I want to park that for a second and come back to the CCUS strategy that's coming out later this year. I want to first talk about energy security. Uh, it's been referenced a couple times. Um, Brice, a question for you. When, when we're thinking about the, the, the focus we have right now about uh, energy security, is there a risk with these new technologies, thinking particularly um, with, well, let's say hydrogen, for instance, is there a risk of new dependencies being developed based around some of these molecule technologies? Well, we, we were talking about the hype of hydrogen. And um, uh, some, some people talk about hydrogen like if it was to replace completely all fossil fuels, which is completely, which is uh, not realistic at all. But of course, um, uh, I discussed with my neighbors uh, from Germany, for instance, and they say, uh, we're going to develop a worldwide market for hydrogen. So I tell them, but why don't we produce it ourselves? If we don't need so much, uh, uh, we can produce um, our own hydrogen in the, on the European soil, on, in European countries. No, no, they want to go further. And that brings us to one discussion on uh, the price of electricity, the amount of electricity you need for, for decarbonizing the society, for electrolyzing um, water, etc. As you know, in France, we are not afraid of nuclear energy, and we, we think that um, low-carbon electricity will be key uh, to produce hydrogen and to produce all the electricity you need if you want to split CO2, uh, etc. So, so that's, that's one part of the, of the discussion. But we believe that the idea of replacing Russian gas by hydrogen imported from I don't know where is not a good idea. Because as you said, it's true that we're going to risk new dependencies. It's, going to be, it's, not, it's not going to be intelligent to do that. So we, we think it's much better to, first of all, don't fall into the hype. Huh? Hydrogen is the only way you need it. And, and second, try to produce it in, in the European countries. 
Um, Chris, let me go to you. We've had, of course, the, the hydrogen strategy. How do we prevent new dependencies from emerging? And also, how do we make sure that these new alternative energy sources are being produced in Europe? Or how can we incentivize that? Kind of a related question. The big topic right now in Brussels is the US IRA and whether uh, it's creating unfair competition, whether development of these clean technologies is going to move over to America from Europe. Um, when it comes to these molecule technologies, how is the US IRA um, impacting thinking over there at the commission? Well, it's, uh, it's impacting big time because I think without, uh, without IRA, we wouldn't have the Net Zero Industry Act and we would probably not have um, critical raw material acts because these two are precisely targeted at making sure that we do as much as we can of this in Europe. So the, the critical raw materials act will, uh, will basically enable us to secure some of the critical materials in Europe or if globally, because you know we are still living in uh, a closing in terms of trading world, but we are still trying to get uh, economies that are cooperating. So it's nothing bad if we import some stuff because we also want to sell some stuff. <laughs> so uh, of course, as much as we can, we should manufacture in Europe and uh, uh, as much as we can, we should mine in Europe as well in, in terms of materials. So, so materials act for uh, mining and permitting and everything related to that. And the net zero industry act for manufacturing green technologies, including electrolyzers, but also including other green technologies like PV panels, uh, heat pumps, um, and also CO2 capture uh, facilities. So all the all the technologies that are critical to decarbonizing uh, European economy. So these two acts are ex exactly what we are trying to propose to keep this in Europe, to make sure that dependencies uh, are limited to the necessary minimum because we cannot we cannot remove them at all, like remove them completely. But uh, certainly, the, the aggression of Russia and Ukraine uh, learned us, uh, taught us a very, very important lesson to avoid dependencies. And we are trying to, to do that legislating as we, as we have in, in the recent past. Jonas, you wanted to come in as well? Yeah. <clears throat> First of all, maybe I would like to, uh, to give uh, the commission and, and also Chris personally, I know he's been very much involved. Some, some kudos, some cred for this Net Zero Industry Act, which has, in fact, revolutionized um, the way that Europe approach, uh, approaches climate action. And I'll get back to why that is so important. But uh, briefly back to the hydrogen point, because I think that's where the Commission hasn't impressed a lot um, in the last year. Um, in fact, when we refer to hydrogen as an energy source, that is factually incorrect. Uh, hydrogen is not an energy source. It's not an energy source that exists in, you know, its its uh, pure form. It is an energy carrier that we need to produce from something. Whereas renewable electricity, again, very energy intensive process to produce hydrogen, or it is produced from natural gas, which is an energy source 
than you know where you split out the hydrogen and most of the hydrogen on the European market today is coming from, from gas, from fossil gas. So we, we shouldn't refer to it as an energy carrier. And I think the Commission, when we've heard the Commission at times in last year making interventions about hydrogen, about the hydrogen bank, etc., um, referring to that as, um, as Brice also said, you know, a way to get off uh, the dependency on gas uh, from Russia and other sources, that makes no sense. This is if you produce it from electricity, which is you know, what we're mainly planning to do in Germany and the rest of Europe, then you need to produce electricity. And currently, we have plenty of electricity coming from gas and coal. And if you just put a lot of electrolyzers in the grids to produce hydrogen, you increase the demand for the electricity that we need to, one, decarbonize, and two, get off the uh, dependency on gas and coal and fossil sources. So, you know, that is not a solution. That is not a way to get off dependency on gas. And that has to be very clear. Thank you. Gabriel? Um, yes, one more on hydrogen. I fully agree. Um, hydrogen is is um, is not is a media to to store. Is a media to decarbonize again. Uh, some sectors, hard to abate sectors like like transport, but industry first. De let's just decarbonize the masses of grey hydrogen that we use and that we need in industry. Once again, referring again back to our refineries, urgency. It's an urgent to see here. And, you know, it was not evident even two years ago that we should decarbonize massively. And the only way to decarbonize that massively is not to have, unfortunately, uh, uh, solar farms, huge solar farms at the bottom of our refineries. I, I tried to do that in Lamed. We have a, we have a project like it with, with Engie. I can tell you it's a challenge to have a PV farm and solar farm and have the additionality and the temporality and the right thing to set the, the green hydrogen. But the most urgent thing I was telling my company is please give me the money to just capture the CO2 that is pouring everywhere from the masses of grey hydrogen that we need. And then recycle also hydrogen. For instance, in Grand Puy, we're moving wine refinery to become a bio-refinery um, uh, to produce... Um, uh, to produce uh, sustainable fuels and renewable fuels from uh, using first bio-waste, fatty acids, used cooking oils and the like. Then we produce, in the, in the, in the production, we have some gases uh, that, 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 that are produced. Then here, we can also, uh, through, uh, by, by passing through an SMR, produce hydrogen from a biogenic source. Also, a little bit. So let's just first um, revisit our processes to decarbonize them and, and make them cleaner before, you know, you, you use all the, um, uh, I mean, we, we will not produce enough green electricity to have masses of green hydrogen tomorrow. Let's just, you know, land and face it. So, uh, and again, I'm not pleading for blue hydrogen or any color or anything. We don't want to produce blue hydrogen. We just want to turn gray into blue, first thing, and then, yes, move to producing green as soon as, as massively and as cheap as we can, because who's going to take this, uh, who's going to commit to using the green hydrogen, which is seven times higher than, uh, you know? Mm. So let's just face it. Yes, perhaps we produce in, 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 in India or in North Africa, we might produce uh, cheaper green hydrogen, but uh, we, if we want also to, 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 to have clean hydrogen, Let's be pragmatic and don't and stop being too dogmatic about the additionality, the putting some rules and the colors and the things. By the way, by the by the way, hydrogen is a greenhouse gas. Hmm. So yes. you know, they're all going to rush <laughs> to green to 
you must be careful because it's so small, the molecule, that it really escapes from everywhere. So it's, it's, it's very easy to, to lose it. So we, mu we must be careful. So in our view, the priority of the priority, you capture your, your CO2. And if you produce these e-fuels or, or SAFs first, but as I said, biomass is un not unlimited. So you have to go to the non-biogenic uh, carbon. You have to prioritize aviation. Aviation, for the time being, for the time being, absolutely needs liquid fuel, drop-in liquid fuel. And so it's going to take a, a, a certain amount of time to get a new, uh, uh, a new generation of, 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 uh, of flight uh, with hydrogen uh, or, or with um, uh, other electric, uh, you know, it's electric planes, it exists, but for, for very small distances. Uh, and for the time being, uh, hydrogen is not ready. It's, you have to completely redesign the airplane. It's, it's, it's difficult. But aviation needs something. And so if, if, as biomass is not unlimited, you have to prioritize the use of biomass uh, to, for aviation, in our view, because biomass is like hydrogen, for instance. Everybody wants some biomass. Everybody wants its share of biomass. And there's not enough biomass. You cannot, you cannot just you know, use nature for everything. I mean, it's not enough biomass. So you must be careful. So this is here. We, we need policy. We need regulation. We need to have a regulation on biomass. And we don't we didn't even know how many, how much biomass we have. I mean, it's incredible. Nobody knows exactly. So we have to have a, a strong, we have to work on biomass and, and to know where you absolutely need it um, before selling it to everybody. Jonas, did you want to respond? Um, so on, on the point about uh, e-fuels and a SAF, which is an abbreviation for sustainable aviation fuels, also could benefit from some further definition, I think. But what you're referring to, of course, combining hydrogen and carbon to produce fuels um, and taking that, uh, that, uh, that carbon from, from biomass. I think, again, we need to ask the same question, which is, if we have limited amounts of renewable electricity, mm. is that a good place to use that electricity mm. to produce hydrogen and also run the process of merging that hydrogen with carbon in order to produce fuels that basically make people feel better about flying uh, when we haven't been able to decarbonize our, our grids yet. I'm not saying this is a no-go forever, but I would say let's focus on using electricity to decarbonize current demand before we start thinking about all kinds of ways to use it elsewhere. And, and I want to get back to the, to the NZIA, the, the Net Zero Industry Act, briefly, because it is really important. And as I said, it has revolutionized the way that we in Europe or the European Union thinks about um, emissions and about how to address them. Because it introduces for the first time an obligation on, well, you guys, oil and gas producers to actually provide the storage and do that CO2 storage and do that based on the carbon content in the products. That is a completely new way of seeing things. There has never been such an obligation, I don't think anywhere. Apart from, you could argue, in Norway, where there's a CO2 tax um, offshore, there is no example of that, that I'm aware of. But I think it really is important because it makes us see this not only from the polluter pays principle, which uh, we have, you know, of course, with the emission training system. It hasn't delivered on industry because it hasn't been able to drive a market change. But by including an obligation on the producers, and I think we need to expand that, by the way, to importers, of uh, petroleum products, um, we actually might drive a change that hasn't taken place in the last decade, and that's been a lost decade for the carbonization of industry. Gabriel? 
perhaps I can answer on this. Um, um, fine, yes, um, we, we, we find to catch and have this obligation uh, because, as I said, I think the bottleneck is going to be um, the storage capacity. But, however, there is no storage and no... It's again the, the, poly, the a little bit our way of thinking and putting sticks and, and instead of carrots, uh, like the IRA does. An obligation to store. To, there will be no construction if there is no demand. If there is no people and no incentivization of emitters to come and store. You know how it works, this, our industry? It works. You take FID once you have 60, 70 contracts or engagements of emitters who have decided and concluded contracts to, to store. And we're lacking these contracts to take FID. As I said, we took FID for Northern Lights because there was a de-risking by the Norwegian government. Um, so we need incentivization of emitters so that they can get credits for not only those submitted to ETS, but perhaps, I don't know, we'll see in the carbon removal uh, legislation if there's something that incentivizes emitters, gives them an advantage for getting, for storing and engaging in these chains uh, and, and contracting with us so that we can build these chains, happy to build these chains. And, and the obligation is, is fine because it makes the, the, the topic, it, it shows that the topic exists, but even if we build empty sinks, that's a little. That's a little danger. One other thing on the hydrogen. Um, going back, there are other low-hanging fruits. Not the debate here, but on the biomass and on what we can do to decarbonize um, using perhaps circular economy and 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 uh, and resources that are there. Uh, we don't talk enough, and I know this is perhaps a little nuance that we have with Brice, because I think there is no competition on the feedstock with that of biomethane. We, we, hydrogen has been the hype, but biomethane is circular economy, is slow-hanging fruit, is, can be massive. We have reinforced our, 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 um, our ambitions in biomethane. It's local, it's circular, it's also biomass, but it's, we don't think there is that much competition before 2030. After, yes, I agree Brice, with you, there might be competition. But the first, um, for biofuels, the first generation, as we know, is lipidic um, uh, waste, is UCO. Um, uh, on biomethane, it's municipal waste, which is not easily usable for, for, for SAF. So you can have something there. And then, and then the waste can be recycled and can be products um, to avoid importing um, uh, fertilizers, for instance. And biomethane can make up, we, we think, it can make up to 20% of the, um, uh, the decarbonization of the gas that we use today. Good for both. Yes, and for GNV, for big, uh, big trucks also, but for boats, yes, you're right. Yes, 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 for boats. CMS CGM is trans transforming its fleet to be able to use it. I want to move on to CCUS, actually, um, because we've had a, a number of, whoa, <laughs> sorry, my chair just exploded. Uh, we've had a number of questions come in from the audience on specifically, because um, of course we have the CCUS strategy coming out later this year, but we've also had the Net Zero Industry Act and CCUS is mentioned as part of it. So we've had three questions come in specifically on CCU's role in the Net Zero Industry Act. These questions are for you, Chris. Uh, so I'll put these three questions to you now. First, we have from Tudy Bernier from the CO2 value from CO2 Value Europe. Can Chris elaborate on the role for CCU in the Net Zero Industry Act? We understand CCU projects are considered net zero technologies, but not as strategic projects. Why? Second question from Antoine Graal. 
uh, with CCS being considered net zero strategic projects under the Net Zero Industry Act, don't we risk leaving aside some technologies that would allow to considerably reduce emissions of some sectors in the first place? And finally, third question from Maud Bauman from Global Council. The Net Zero Industry Act ambitions for the EU to deploy an annual CO2 injection capacity of 50 million tons by 2030. In the UK, much smaller, the ambition is set at 30 million tons. Do you, do you think that the ambition is proportionate? Okay, I'll, I'll start from, from the last question. So, and I, I think I, I would also like to allude to, uh, to the previous speakers on, on, the, on the, the risking and, and the obligation and why we have sticks and not carrots. Um, so I, I think that the, we, we decided to go for 50 uh, million tons because if you, if you have a look at the market and how it's evolving in the EU, uh, if, you, if you just calculate how many projects have announced uh, the willingness to go ahead by 2030, uh, it, it totals up to more than 80 million tons per, per year. So, of course, not all of these projects will happen. And of course, there'll be some, uh, some storage development beyond of the obligation because the market will, will take off. So, so we decided to go below that figure. And is it, is it comparable to the UK market? I think that their ambition on, on CCUS is, is slightly above Europe because they have started earlier. They uh, have been working on, uh, on deployment of CCUS hubs uh, for, for quite some time now. So they are ahead of us. And, uh, and I hope we can, we can catch up and, and maybe at some stage we, we could start cooperating again. Uh, certainly, the, the Net Zero Emission Act uh, does not include Norway at this stage. So that's another step that we could, could link Norway with Net Zero Emission Act and linked, link the, the obligation of 50 million tons and negotiate with Norway to, to increase the, this, this target. Um, and I think that this is... Um, it's, it's not that CCS is taking uh, someone else's spot in the limelight or in, uh, in sort of in providing emission reductions and uh, ignoring other technologies. I think if you, if you read IPCC, it's, it's very, very clear. And also analysis from the International Energy Agency that we need a portfolio of technologies. And CCS, um, and CCU enable you to, to get some emission reductions at scale. And there are, of course, some industry sectors, hard to abate sectors, that would not decarbonize uh, without CCS. For example, cement, and to a large extent, uh, chemical industry or, or steel industry. So we are doing this to help actually some sectors to decarbonize because they don't have any other options. And, and I think that 
once the infrastructure is there, uh, other sectors could join, and and this is the risking for 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 everyone everyone else. Uh, of course, it's an unorthodox strategy of the risking. We do not provide carrots, but we we provide an obligation, so the storage will be there. Uh, so capture installations could now go ahead and there's no this chicken and egg problem that we've we've had over and over again um last question on on ccu um it's it was uh, relatively easy to to group all the 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 capture and and storage technology in a bundle and try to de-risk them uh with a use of a storage obligation but uh the CCU technologies are so different that it's it's very difficult to bundle them together. Uh, we we face this uh, issue already when working on the on the green taxonomy. We couldn't include CCU because it's 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 just so the the, the, the technologies are so diverse. It's it's very difficult to actually put them uh, and and put put them in some boundaries. So that's why this this. Uh, maybe odd uh, maneuver when uh, CCU are uh, net zero strategic technologies, but not not included in 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 the annex. Um, Jonas, I think you wanted to come in on the point about Norway, right? And uh, okay, well maybe you could partially, also partially. Well, because there's another question specifically on the, the point Chris made about Norway, that in the Net Zero Industry Act, the CCS target for right now is for the EU. This question is from Pedro Francisco. Um, but if oil and gas producers are obliged to contribute proportionally to the targets, that would impact Norway more than others. How would this increase translate to the reductions and what will be specific requirements? Do you want to take that point about Norway? And then also you could respond to the other points. Right. OK. So Norway first then. Um, the um, Northern Lights, and congratulations on, on making that FID. I think it was a good thing. Um, ten years, we had to fight the consultants, multiple consultants, of the Ministry of Finance in Norway in order to get the government to make their part of that decision, which you refer to as de-risking, mm -hmm. um, because we needed that to happen as breaking that chicken and egg where there is no storage, and therefore industry doesn't want to talk about you know, net zero and how far you can get with decarbonization, not in the 2040s, but now. And Northern Lights, those, those arguments that came from the Ministry of Finance were always the same. There is no interest in industry mm -hmm. for CO2 storage, which was because industry was having no trust that there was going to be any CO2 storage. Mm -hmm. And um, let's face it also, mm. um, 10 years ago, I led a task force first task force on CCS in the industry in Europe. We had people from the steel industry, cement industry, chemicals industry, mm -hmm. and we very often heard the same thing. They also didn't trust the oil and gas producers, which is why this obligation is so important, because they didn't trust that oil and gas producers would provide the storage, and if they would provide it, being dependent on one or maybe two oil and gas producers that could then set the price at whatever level they wanted, turning industry and society into a cash cow, um, obviously not a nice prospect, and therefore no one talked about it. So we needed this de-risking and we needed that decision to happen. But now what Chris and, and the Commission have done, moving that into an obligation on you know, the 
producers of the product that, of course, we then burn and emit is an important next step because this cannot be something that governments around Europe have to put billions on the table for. It needs to be something that enables us as a society to decarbonize. That wasn't really a Norway uh, answer, but I think it is partially. And it brings me to the other point I wanted to make, which is storage um, and the CCU question. We heard the reference to net zero products. And I think there's a lot of confusion and conflation and some willful, some not, about what net zero constitutes. And of course, um, when it comes to products, what is a net zero product in the context of CCU? You could say, if you take carbon, you put it into a plastic bottle, and you throw that plastic bottle in the sea, um, it's permanently there, but that's not really what we are interested in doing, right? Uh, more plastic in the sea. So it would imply that if you have a plastic bottle, that in to ensure the permanence, you need to have a closed cycle of, um, of um, uh, recycling. And that closed cycle is purely theoretical. One, recycling has a huge energy demand. Two, recycling of plastic reduces the quality, which means you can't produce the same product again and again. So we need to be clear on what is a net zero product and what is it that constitutes net zero relevance. And the storage is permanent. If it's not permanent, it cannot be net zero relevant. And that is something that we need to make sure is coherent across EU policies. Um, and you know, that's, I think, why also this Net Zero Industry Act, as, as Chris uh, referred to, like storage is clear. It has only one purpose, that is climate action. There is no other purpose to store CO2. Whereas use of CO2 can be very relevant to climate action, if there's permanence, can also be completely irrelevant to climate action. Um, and so dealing with CCU as one thing uh, doesn't make sense. You need to think about what is it that you use the CO2 for, what happens to that CO2 afterward. Gabrielle, I want to get your thoughts on the CCUS issue as well, and I'll take the opportunity to put another related audience question to you. This is from Niels Hackstausen. Um, why accept CCU and CCS on fossil fuel in the long run? <clears throat> Even CCS is not real decarbonization due to inefficiencies and methane leakage. In the long run, we need CCS on process CO2 from cement and biogenic and atmospheric CO2 and limited CCU for aviation and plastics, not more. Um, so maybe if you could respond to that specifically and also the general point on CCUS. If I understand the question is, <clears throat> um, well, um, we need to make progress on CCS so that to make it a permanent storage, as Jonas says, um, we need to improve, we need to have competition, uh, not just one, be, 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 be uh, the hostage of one, uh, one thing, one oil and gas, so the emitters, you know, start doing it. So we, we, we need competition. Um, Norway is the first one, but there are others coming up uh, uh, we haven't talked about uh, uh, on, the, on, the, on the shores of the Netherlands, in Denmark, and also we, we're looking for some things also in, in Southern Europe. Um, there needs to be um, R&D to improve the capture make it less energy intensive, uh, because uh, it's very energy int intensive. At the same time, also improve R&D. We need R&D on DAX and DEX. We haven't talked much about DAX and DEX. But they still need to be improved to reduce the energy use. The today, and the research on, on them is, is perhaps 
we, we think it's a long way out because you know it's very it's very energy consuming when the energy uh, price of energy is there there's no uh, business case for DAX and VIX uh, for the moment so that's what that's also one so we need to prove and, and improve the, the R&D. We also need cross-border for CO2. Today, um, uh, the, 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 the countries are limiting themselves to having sinks for their own sake. We're going back to national, very nationalisms uh, in, in CCS. And I mean, the, the UK wanted to keep their sink for themselves, and the region a little bit also, um, let me say. But that's, that's the slide. So we need, we need to have, um, and to, first to have to allow cross-border flows of CO2, but also to, to have a market and, and incentivize it and decrease the price. So, and the question was why should we, of course we need to work also on the EU, well, both, there's not one either or, but massively for the moment the S is much more, is, I mean the quantities are so huge compared to the little U that is being, uh, that it's possible to do, to, to, to recycle. And I fully agree with you on us. You recycle it where? Is it in cement or construction that is fairly permanent? Yes, okay. But they can be, you know, very, 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 uh, it can be recycled and uh, re rejected, you know, a, a few weeks uh, later. So hence the, hence the work on the carbon, on the certification of the carbon removals. And we haven't talked here about nature, capturing in wood and nature-based solutions. And I must say, well, just one word, I was also in charge of this business, and I really regret all the uh, operations uh, I could invest in as a company, massively, were outside Europe, because there you have a framework and you have a market. So I invested in, in Australia with the, carb with the agriculture, because the soils capture quite well, and they have a market there, and they have a framework, and they have standards, and they have a verification, and it's an Australian market. We invested in, in South America, and we invested even thanks to the World Bank in Africa. Because here they have a framework and a market which we don't have today in Europe. So, and, and you can have fairly permanent storage. Of course, it's very complicated nature, so we need to have standards and verified and the like, but we could also remove uh, and store in nature, which we don't. We don't have this in Europe for the moment. Yes. I just wanted to say that um, uh, for e-fuels, we already have a regulation for aviation. Aviation is forced to incorporate e-fuels, so you have to produce them. Uh, you know, I see the, the, the DAC, the direct air capture, something which should be in every house, every house of the world, every house, every urban quarter, every house should have a, a, a DAC uh, a capture. Because if you want it to be at scale, that's the, the only way you, you'll get to it. Uh, and it means that uh, every house, uh, every, every quarter of, of a city will have its own system, which would be transformed in a rock or something, uh, and, and removed. I mean, carbon removal in the IPCC is 15% roughly of the solution. So if it's 15% of the solution, <laughs> we must not wait. We have to really work on it. And it's true, you have to, to R&D, but you have some people who... Master the wind. You don't need to pump. It's the wind which brings uh, the air, food. I mean, there's lots of, of, of solutions. So we have to do it. Come on. I mean, otherwise, it's so obvious that our problem is too much carbon in the air. Okay, so pump it out. 
Chris, I think you wanted to respond to some of these points on CCUS, and I will put a related audience question to you as well. This question is from Zoltan Sabo. Um, the current CCS boom in the U.S. is championed by the fermentation industry, and industry in EU is all also ready to deploy CCS. Do you agree that in order to create a business case, the carbon contracts for difference should be implemented, designed for permanent storage, where the me methodology is simple? Well, my simple, simple answer to this question is yes, we should, of course. <laughs> um, and I, I just wanted to, to also uh, add um, some arguments to, to the question asked before on, on the why do we do CCS with fossil CO2? I, I think it's, it's very important to realize that doing, like removing fossil carbon now, we are investing in transport and storage infrastructure that will be there for years to come and which will be used for um, biogenic CO2, so non-fossil CO2 as well. It will be instrumental in removing carbon from the air. So while we start with the fossil CO2, because this enables us to, to remove uh, large quantities, to avoid large quantities of emissions. We will use this infrastructure for green CO2, if you will. So this is what we do now. It's not only helping with fossil CO2, it's actually paving the future towards those carbon removals and, and how, we, how, we, how we use them to, to actually net off the, the emissions. So I do want to move on back to hydrogen because that's the other big uh, subject that the questions, I, I'm noticing the questions are very much focused on CCUS and hydrogen. So let's flip back to hydrogen now. Uh, Brees, question for you. Um, to what extent will hydrogen be relevant for the decarbonization of the road transport sector in the medium and long term? We touched upon this a bit at the beginning, particularly with recent developments uh, in Berlin. Um, what what extent what, can hydrogen really be a realistic transport fuel? Well, we've been working on that. We believe it uh, could be used by um, uh, lorries, by big lorries, on on, on uh, I would say a certain amount of, of uh, European roads where you could have the infrastructure. But otherwise, no. Otherwise, no. Electricity, I mean, it's very simple. You've got, you've got plugs everywhere. You don't have hydrogen plugs everywhere. So, it's, it, you know, it, it, it can work only on heavy-duty um, transportation. It can work also on uh, rail, railways uh, for some. Um, uh, and, and, and that's fair enough. And, and it can work uh, on these two, I think, uh, categories of, uh, of transportation. But otherwise... No, it's, it's, it cannot compete with electricity, which is so flexible, so easy, so simple. Would all the other panelists agree with that? Yeah, yeah sure. For, for, for heavy-duty trucks, uh, buses, uh, trains. Um, um, we know there is one manuf manufacturer of, uh, that believes in it for airplanes. So we, we, we just watch. We'll see. You know, but um, that's it. So, again, this is a bit of a theoretical exercise. Hydrogen can be used for all kinds of stuff, but we don't have the hydrogen. 
And to the extent we're going to have hydrogen, we're going to either have to take that from fossil gas, which you know, is not what we're really trying to do here, especially since there's a target to get off the dependency on gas, or you get it from electricity. So again, hydrogen is not an energy source. And when, the, when we refer to the, the targets, as you said, there's a target for sustainable aviation fuels. There's a target for use of hydrogen in a lot of different sectors, including industry. And people refer to that as a renewable target. There's a renewable target for aviation. No, there's no renewable target for aviation. There is a target for using renewables we have available for aviation, which is not adding any renewables in the system unless we get additionality. So um, we need to think about what is it that gives us impact today. I hope many of you picked up the message from the IPCC, as you referred to earlier, um, the IPCC yesterday. We have no time. We're out of time, which means if we don't implement things this decade, we fail. And that means thinking about things as could we use you know, hydrogen in, in trucks in 2040? If we can decarbonize trucks today, we need to decarbonize trucks today, which means using energy in an efficient way, and that's electricity, electrification, wherever possible. It's building more renewables in order to provide that electricity and using hydrogen only where it is absolutely required, which is true for, for instance, part of the chemical sector, and it might also play a role in steel. Um, well, you know, one recent development that you mentioned is, of course, the, the 2035 combustion engine ban, which Germany has intervened to undo the deal in the council. Um, so related question for you, Jonas, and then I'll put this to other panelists as well. This question is from Bruno Capuzzi. Um, you mentioned the act on ending combustion engine and its recent developments. Do you believe this is a feasible act, meaning would ending combustion engine altogether create more problems, such as the source of electrification that you mentioned? Related question also from Danielle Tronix from Energy International. When exactly would the German government and certain other EU member states accept the EU ban on combustion engines that emit CO2 and accept the production of electric vehicles and hydrogen vehicles? So if not 2035, when do you think they'd be okay with it? There's a fantastic irony in this. Um, the e-fuels um, conversation and this particular uh, situation that we're facing now in council is a German trauma. And the German trauma started with Dieselgate. 2015, it led to, of course, a desperate situation for many of the car producers that have been cheating and weren't going to be able to get away with cheating anymore. Then e-fuels came in because there was a massive pressure in Germany from Tesla mainly, which was you know, ramping up a massive production in Europe and, else, and in America of electric vehicles. Um, and that was a threat because the German car producers have been gambling on cheating. So now they need something new, and Audi in particular, the car company, uh, which is the daughter company of Volkswagen, was pushing for e-fuels as a solution, got even the German uh, transport minister at the time, uh, Mr. Dobrindt, to say, this is the new spring for the combustion engine. This is the uh, German alternative to electrification. They knew it was nonsense, but they, they said that. And now we are in a situation where Audi, ironically, is one of the few car, uh, car companies in Germany because they did their homework, bought some time with this, they did their homework on electrification, they're one of the few car companies who are now opposing the German move to block the end of combustion engines in council. I think that says a lot about the German e-fuels trauma, and it needs to end. 
for Germany, for its industry, and for Europe. We need to move on. It doesn't mean that e-fuels is completely out of the question in aviation, but for, for land transport, come on. The industry needs uh, security and uh, continuity, and you cannot go on moving all the time because you, it's very heavy investments. And electrification of uh, vehicles is a revolution. It's very mm -hmm. difficult. Yes. And so we have to help our industry to do it instead of saying, oh, no, no, I mean, it's probably it's a German mistake, but I mean, they're not here to answer, <laughs> so there we are. But mm. now it is, yes. Yeah, I'm aware we don't have a, a, mm. a German, someone from the German government to respond to this. But yes. Gabrielle, I mean, do you view these recent developments as a setback for hydrogen and transport? No, no, not for hydrogen. I, I fully agree with my with my colleagues that uh, it was decided we have to move to electricity, and and uh, apart from the segments that where it's difficult, uh, aviation, and 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 and, and uh, um, so um, it's it's a this hesitation. Yes. It is going to be difficult for some countries to have the infrastructure right, but we must help them and we, and we must uh, envisage to have the charging uh, investments, for instance, for Eastern Europe. We know it's going to be a challenge for certain, for certain uh, countries. But the topic here is perhaps the setback of some of OEMs who haven't done the homework, as you say, and who are trying to, you know, because the car industry didn't really, uh, Europe, the other uh, countries didn't really ask for a setback uh, on this topic. To be right, if you look at it. Um, so, no, it's uh, hydrogen is going to have a little room uh, for um, for for certain types of transport that cannot be electrified, but it's going to be a little room. We massively have to move to electrification with the adequate um, investments, which are heavy. So the other question is, how are we going to and do not underestimate the amount of of um, networks? Electricity networks, charging stations, both transborder, cross-border, local, bi-directional, bi uh, that's uh, electrification of the continent. It's a re-electrification of the continent, which is massive. So we have to think, how do we incentivize these investments? Who's going to pay for that? How do we get in PPP? There are infrastructure funds, there's private money, but there's also business models set with CFDs, for instance, like what was said, to incentivize and to ease the, the ramp up of private investments. Chris, I have a couple of hydrogen questions for you from the audience. Um, so first question is from Shana Casas from ELS Analysis. How relevant is the role of offshore wind in the transition and for the future use of hydrogen? Question two from Maud Bauman from Global Council. Maud Bauman from Global Council. The rollout of hydrogen benefits from a solid regulatory support from the Commission. However, its strategy is mainly looking at ensuring supplies. Will the Commission work on a mapping or a plan to map and optimize demand? And a third question is, uh, uh, no, let's just do those two. Okay, so those two to Chris. <laughs> Thank you. So of course demand is, is important because uh, we, we, we see, we, we hear stories from the market that, you know, uh, there is already supply of hydrogen, but there's no buyers, no takers. So what we are trying to do with the hydrogen bank is actually to bridge the gap between the demand and supply. So to, to actually work with uh, stimulating the demand as well. So it's very, very important because otherwise, 
there will be just hydrogen on the market and there will be n no takers at all. So, so all would be just pointless, really. Um, and offshore wind role in hydrogen production. I think, well, to be honest, it's uh, hydro. Uh, there's companies, you, you see companies today investing in like energy islands because uh, when, uh, when you cannot sell electricity to the grid, you can you can uh, produce some hydrogen. But uh, if you look at uh, how reliable offshore uh, offshore wind it really is in comparison, for example, to onshore wind, there's there's more hours that you could actually rely on on offshore wind. It's also more reliable for grid operators to actually feed the electricity from onshore wind to the grid. So. It's true that it's a, a, a possible source to actually arbitrage your, your electricity. Do you want to use it for hydrogen production? Do you want to sell it to the grid? But um, in, in my opinion, there's, there's more opportunities for offshore wind operators to actually sell electricity and only, only when there's no demand from, from the grid operators to, to, to produce hydrogen. I would also like to, to chip in uh, to the hydrogen transport uh, from my previous experience working for a uh, NGO dealing with transport uh, electrification. Um, of course, you know there are areas in the world where you where you don't have water, so you could use hydrogen to create water, but it doesn't make any sense. It's it's similar to you know. Um, hydrogen in in transport. Of course, there'll be there'll be some market niches like long haul transport. But to be honest, we are possibly one uh, invention away in battery technology to electrify this niche as well. Uh, if you have a look at, for example, working time of drivers, truck drivers, uh, there are perfectly perfectly suited to actually electrify the truck so yes there'll be some use of hydrogen in transport but not a lot and if you if you have a look that uh, toyota who's championing hydrogen cars uh, finally decided well let's let's give that up i i think that that was a big big uh, big sign when when we are where we are moving Thanks, Chris. Well, that is all the time we have for today's discussion. I think there's a lot to chew over here, uh, both in terms of the recent hydrogen strategy that came up, but also the CCUS strategy that we are awaiting uh, later this year. I want to thank the panelists for some excellent interventions. I think it's given us a lot to think about and a lot to chew over. As uh, people in the room, I would invite you to uh, come out to the reception and now for some networking and to further discuss all of these issues and how molecules will fit in to Europe's energy future. So thank you again to the panelists and thank you again to those of you joining us at home. We'll see you right here for the next Your Active Debates. Thank you.